0: From the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California, I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Well, thanks everyone so much for coming out tonight. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry for the, sorry for the late start. We uh, wanted to allow a little bit for traffic in case people couldn't make it, and I know the traffic was heavy. Um, so thanks for braving that. Uh, my is Ellie Unger-Sargon, I'm a filmmaker, and um, uh, just a note on uh, the order of things tonight. I'm going to uh, finish my introductory remarks. Uh, we'll watch uh, my film Cut, which is 70 minutes long. Uh, after the film, uh, we'll be doing a question and answer session and um, Aubrey will be going around with a wireless mic. Uh, it doesn't amplify her voice, it just records, but for the podcast audience, and this is all going to be podcast, um, it's very important that people are able to hear the questions. So if you can just wait until she comes around with the mic to ask your question, we really appreciate that. Uh, after the question and answer session is over, I'm going to be showing a preview from my next film. Uh, a people Without a Land about the Israeli Palestinian conflict, a five minute extended trailer. And um, after that, we will be selling DVDs of Cut. There's a special uh, price tonight for people who come to Cut Tour screenings, um, and that is $20 for a single DVD, and for more than one DVD, if you buy more than one, it's $15 per unit. Uh, I want to thank, uh, I want to deeply thank. Aubrey Taylor and David Llewellyn and family uh, for their wonderful hospitality and for all of their efforts in putting this together tonight. Uh, And thank you all for coming. Uh, So without further ado, my film cut. Thank you all very much. Uh, Before we jump into the question and answer session, I want to thank the whole network uh, who's uh, sponsoring my journey across the country. and uh, mentioned that um, when we get to the um, sale of dvds we take cash and credit cards whatever is most convenient for you and that um, we appreciate any donation the recommended donation is four dollars and two dollars for low-income or students uh, and we appreciate any if you want to donate more that's great too um so having said that um let's jump into some questions Does anyone have a question or something they want to ask me
1: Hey, uh, first, thank you for coming to Atlanta. I really enjoyed your film. I like I liked how you had your family in there; that was nice. Um, my question is really about some information I come I've come across recently about um, a Jewish law or rule about basically if you've lost a son to circumcision, that you are off the hook to circumcise your next babies.
0: Sure. So, um, wow, that's a that's an in depth. <laughs> educated question. Um, there is a, you know the Talmud is a sort of collection of um, it's one of the, the main corpuses of Jewish law that was uh, developed over the years and was redacted in uh, the 7th century and the one that most people rely on is the Babylonian Talmud and in the Babylonian Talmud I believe it's in Tractate Nedarim um, there's a discussion about whether uh, what, what happens uh, it's actually if a woman has lost two babies um, and uh, I think it's generally accepted that this is uh, sort of recognition, like an early recognition of hemophilia. Um, and yes, the, there's a discussion there, and there's a dispute actually between the rabbis. One rabbi says if she's lost two babies, then she doesn't need to circumcise the third. And the other one says if she's lost three babies, she doesn't need to circumcise the fourth. Um, nowadays, now this is, again, we're talking uh, sort of 7th century text. Um, from Persia, um, there's been development since then in Jewish law, and I believe that nowadays, um, if there's any kind of risk to the baby, circumcision. I mean, for example, if a baby is born with jaundice, circumcision is p- postponed thirty days or so, um, and I, I, I think that rabbis are pretty lenient uh, when it comes to hemophilia. Hemophiliacs, hemophiliacs I, actually, according to Jewish law, are not allowed to be circumcised.
1: Okay, I, I found it really interesting because. Uh, circumcision is such a dated practice and it just shows how far back babies have been losing their lives from it. And I think a lot of parents, I hear, I hear how they, they want to say the benefits outweigh the risks when they don't seem to maybe realize that the risk could actually be death and how long that's dated back to.
0: It, it is. Yeah. It's a, that's a really good point. It's evidence that, um, also that the rabbis knew that babies died from right. circumcision and they were still pressing ahead with it. Um, and yeah, that's, that's abso- absolutely true. Thanks. Giving Aubrey a workout here, I like it. <laughs>
2: um, when did it become just a ritual nick to the complete removal? Because I've read that it used to be just a bloodletting ceremony that was it and not the complete removal, is that true?
0: Right. So this is something that I, I've, I've heard a number of times. It's actually a misconception. Um, it is definitely true that at one point in history, um, in Jewish history, uh, circumcision was a less radical procedure. But it was never a nick. Um, this uh, People may be confusing this with something that's called which is something that's done um, in the event that a person was circumcised non-ritually or in the event of a convert who's already circumcised, you draw a a sort of symbolic amount of blood uh, from the circumcision scar in those two instances for Jewish law purposes. Um, The original Jewish practice of circumcision um, was not as central as it is today, and it was not as radical. It was not as central in the sense that Best, based on our best guesses, um, and what Len said in the film also sort of speaks to this, um, it became really central um, at the second temple period. But we know that it was going on beforehand. Um, it was less radical because um, the original practice was just cutting off the anterior uh, part of the foreskin that overhung the glands, um, and. Uh, The rabbis in the time of the Hellenic period actually made it more radical than that. And the reason is that um, Jewish men were restoring their foreskins. um, And they would attach weights and restore their foreskins uh, to fit in better with Hellenic society. Among other things, um, the Olympic Games were performed in the nude, but it was considered to be vulgar to have your glands showing. And so these Jewish men would put some weights on their foreskins for a little bit and then the, the, the foreskin would, would would be restored. The rabbis caught wind of this and they said, well, we're gonna add some uh, things to the circumcision to make it virtually impossible to restore your foreskins. Uh, and that's when they added the practice of priya, which is the tearing away of the mucosa and mitzitsa, which is the oral to genital suction on the wound after the, after the priya. Um, so, that's uh, now, and the other thing that should be mentioned is I, I, I believe, again, impossible to know for sure, but I believe that even the original form of Jewish circumcision ablated the ridged band. Um, and so when people like Jay Michelson, who was writing for the Forward early in the summer said, well, we have to recognize that there are two sides, and so maybe the compromise position should be that we should go back to the less radical form of circumcision, um, that's an important, Consideration to take into account that even if you're just doing that and because the ridge band is so distal in the foreskin um, That would still be a big big problem
2: Do any forms of Judaism still perform the suction?
0: Yes Um, It's standard practice in the Orthodox tradition of circumcision and I believe some conservative Mohels and uh, Mohels do it Um, It uh, when the germ theory of disease came about in the late 19th century, um, it was recognized by the rabbis of the time that um, there were, there may be a a risk of infection. And so um, what they instituted and a number of Orthodox rabbis actually um, made this clear was that the instead of direct oral to genital suction, that a sterile sort of tube or a pipette be used instead. And that's what I think most Orthodox Jews do to this day. So they'll still do the suction, but there's a sort of barrier. Um, but having said that, there are still Jews who do the direct uh, oral to genital suction. And there are a number of babies in New York uh, in 2005 that died from a herpes infection as a result of this practice. Um, and the uh, it, it should be noted, finally, that um, it's Hasidic Jews, uh, more than any other sort of denomination of Jews that insist on this. And that has to do with the way that their um, mystical, uh, Kabbalistic-based traditions developed around this practice. And they, they give importance to absolutely every step. It has a sort of mystical, theurgic importance.
3: Um, Hi, thank you for being here. Um, Hi. When you started filming this documentary, were you already against circumcision, or was that something that developed as a result of the research that you did?
0: So I had um, questions about it. I had serious questions about it from the age of 15 when I was... um, Put in a, an interesting position. I was uh, given the honor of being the sandik, which is the person that holds a baby at the bris, and it was my cousin. And that's when I started thinking about it critically for the first time. So I was thinking about it critically, and I went to medical school and I sort of started studying some of the health claims, and I wasn't impressed. Um, so I was. Um, I went into this film with questions and with a critical eye. But I had not made up my mind about what I would do or how I felt about the practice definitively until I did my research. And um, what I tried to show in the film is my intellectual and emotional journey of arriving at the place that I'm at. Um, and that, that, that was a process. Um, and there were a number of steps along the process. and uh, So that, yeah, it, it happened during the making of the film.
4: How many um, folks that you talked to began to appreciate the function of the foreskin, not just as protective qualities, but as sexual qualities? The Mohalette um, from the National Association of Organization of American Moalim said they would stop doing it if there was any sort of harm. And I wondered if you got very far with her in regard to the ridge band and its sexual function that uh, Harry Meislin described.
0: Um. With Donnie Aaron, Rabbi Donnie Aaron, who you're referring to, Yes, I did have a conversation with her after the film was done. She, w- she was upset about um, the way I edited her part of the film. And I, we went to lunch and I sat down with her. It's very important to me that my subjects not feel like I took cheap shots. Um, and I, I, <laughs> I think documentary filmmaking is an ethically challenging practice. Um, I liken it to an ethical minefield because it's it's, it's very, very complex. Um, but I, I, I tried very hard to be fair to my subjects. Um, so we had a, a good conversation and one of the things that emerged from that conversation, which I find surprising but um, you know telling, is uh, I said to her, I said, you know, I want you to consider for a second that everything you're saying about the health benefits which you know she's clearly that's her big thing everything you're saying about that might be true let's for the sake of argument say that and that everything that i'm saying about the sexual effects are true concurrently have you ever considered that she was very honest and she said that she had never considered it and that was that was the end of our conversation pretty much um that she admitted that she had never considered that those two things could be true at the same time um and um, so obviously she saw the film and um but that was that was the extent of it um i i think the sexual effects really important um not everyone does and um a lot of people when they come out of this film uh, the circumcision scene itself is really what impresses upon them the problem um, more than anything but for me Like, I think the the sexual effects are so ethically charged um, because they're lifelong and they're permanent. Um, And so, for me, that's that's a very important part, but not everyone sees eye to eye with me on that. Uh, Even people who oppose circumcision don't all agree with me that that's a really important thing.
5: I was really... um I'm not sure what the word is. (laughs) Uh, The guy in the kitchen who said that he was an abuser was, I'm kind of floored me, I guess. Um, Is there, how much of that conversation did we not see? Was there, did you challenge him any further on that? I mean, I know his end remark was just like, well, you have to accept being an abuser or you're not Jewish. And do you find that kind of attitude to be common amongst others who I guess maybe are more objective and, and can recognize this for, for what maybe an anti-activist might see it as um, without all the fanciful excuses around it? Has, has anybody else ever said that? I'm, yes, I'm an abuser, but that's, that's being Jewish.
0: Well, I'm still in touch with Rabbi Warsh. Um, and, you know, it's not every day that you hear someone say something like that, which is part of the reason it made it into the film. Um, but I I look at that as, um, I have a certain appreciation for that. Um, I think that there are there are people who, there are different levels of approaching this. And certain people um, hide behind things like claims of medical benefits. And then there are certain people who don't. Um, and there, I think there are two categories of people who don't hide behind those things. And to me, they're on, their discourse is on a higher level than the others. Um, the two types of people I'm referring to are religious fundamentalists and um, moral or cultural relativists. A religious fundamentalist will say exactly, if you get them to be honest, and if you're lucky like me and they come out and say it, they'll say, God told me to do this, I know it's abusive, I do what God told me to do. And in a way that's to me a more admirable position than the sort of liberal representatives that you saw in the film who were like, oh, it's healthy or you know, not giving very coherent answers to my questions. The other side is the cultural relativists. And the cultural relativists will tell you, well, we don't think female circumcision should be against the law either because it's a cultural practice and cultural practices um, come from their own perspectives and they come with their own value systems. And, and that's also a more consistent position than the person who's hiding behind the health benefits arguments. Um, so in a way, in a strange way, I feel like I can have a more intelligent conversation with those people than people who are going on and on about uh, health benefits and the science and trying to dispute some of the effects of circumcision or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's striking. And um, how typical is it? It's it's not so typical because, you know, the truth of the matter is, and this is just kind of a sad truth, I think, um, most Jews and most Gentiles that I know don't think about circumcision, period. Um, and to the extent that people do, um, they generally sort of trot out the same kinds of tropes, which, should tell you that it's a very deeply embedded cultural practice that is on such a primal level. It's so embedded in our culture that it's um, it's not something that most people think about at all and critically. Uh, um, I mean, that's that's very very rare.
5: Have you? in that situation where someone is just totally out and honest and saying I'm doing this because God said it doesn't matter if it's good, bad, or the different, have you ever said we're alive now, they were alive then, what if it's not really what we're supposed to be doing? I mean as far as we know it's a documentation of history, we're doing it because we did it, because we did it, because we did it. Have you ever challenged anyone and had a response to that?
0: Well, not to put too fine a point on it, but I see part of my role in this world as combating religious fundamentalism. And um, so I take this very seriously, and I have a fight with those people. Because one of the things I was really trying to do here was show that if you follow my logic, and if you follow the logic of the film you get to a point where you either have to say what Hershey Warsh said, or you have to say what I said and what Len Glick said. And, and um, you know, I really think that, um, I mean, I have a fight with those folks. Um, some of them are very close to me, too. But it, the fight is about how you define being um, part of the Jewish tradition. Um, and that can just stand in as a model for, you know, Sort of insert religion here, right? I mean, what does it mean to be religious? Um, And what happens when your religious tradition seems to be demanding immoral behavior of you? Um, And, you know, my response to that is, um, I'm not moral because of God. I'm moral in spite of God.
4: Let me follow up on something. You said that most parents don't really give a thought to circumcision, but not just here, but in any film I've ever seen of a breast, unlike perhaps the reaction of a mother in a hospital who isn't present during the circumcision and only sees the baby maybe an hour or two after it's happened. Here, on every mother's face and in every film of a bris, and I've seen several, there is a distress on the mother's face that's, that's so obvious. First, before the cutting one of fear, and after one, afterwards, one of being upset that she has allowed this to happen. And I guess my question is this. Given the evolving position of women in Jewish society, has there been, have you noticed any movement by Women in Jewish society to criticize, Brit Milah, because of the agony they undergo. I mean, we we know that those of us who are active in this movement know of women in this movement who express have expressed this agony themselves. Miriam Pollock comes to mind. But I'm curious about in your travels if you have met women who are not active in this movement who say are Orthodox or conservative, who have expressed these concerns and if they've done anything about them.
0: You know, I was going to bring up Miriam Pollock because she recently published a, a really excellent article in the um, Jewish magazine Tikkun, um, which she, uh, I understand, had been trying to get published for a very, very long time. And this year, she was finally able to publish it. And in that article, she talks about um, patriarchy and um, how women have been completely disempowered Jewish women in particular, over this issue. Um, No, I have not noticed any kind of movement um, or any kind of activism coming from that quarter. What I will tell you is, um, you'll notice that my mother was absent from the film and that I asked her to be in it and she refused. And she's a religious fundamentalist and um, very ashamed of my work. Um, and the only thing she ever said to me about this, and she hates it when it comes up, but the only thing she ever said to me about this was, um, you think it's easy for Jewish mothers? That was it. Um, that's telling. My aunt in the film who was crying, um, she has five sons. Each one of them were circumcised. It was a traumatic experience for her every time, and she won't speak about this publicly but if you get her you know at the right moment she'll tell you it it was one of the worst moments every single one was one of the worst moments of her life and one of them actually one of her boys had a terrible complication the mohel wrapped the gauze too tightly and the the boy was screaming through the night and they couldn't figure it out and when they finally figured it out the the penis was blue um and you know these stories happen every day, and it's over and over. And um, you know, I'm just I'm grateful that that Miriam is doing the work that she does uh, because at least someone's starting to give voice to this. Uh, and I'll continue talking about it too when I hear these stories because that's part of the cost, right? When people talk about the cost and benefit of, of circumcision, they're trying to do a cold analysis. Um, there's so many things that are left out and one of the things is the psychological social consequences for the mothers
4: Yeah. well what about do the men ever like your father who is a physician do they ever discuss the complications i mean you just described what i'd not heard before wrapping the bandage too tight i'm not surprised as a lawyer i've heard of plenty of complications and dealt with a number of them in cases uh, both in judaic and non-judaic circumcisions but do men privately within Judaism, discuss these complications. No. And that's far worse, having that complication in the locker room, a serious complication, than it is having a foreskin So
0: Not in my experience. Um, no. And it's hard to get men to talk about this, I think for different reasons than the reason it's hard to get women to talk about it. Um, and no, I haven't heard any of that from... I, again, my limited experience, but you know, people kind of know that I'm the guy who doesn't like circumcision and maybe I would have heard something, but no, I haven't, I haven't.
4: What well, what about what is the dynamic that keeps this going among, do you think, that keeps this going among those who are just culturally Jewish and aren't really religious? Because I, I certainly, as you have said, I can understand the fundamentalist argument, you, that is certainly the argument that is made by fundamentalist Christians for a number of practices. That, you know, you see it on bumper stickers here in the South. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. So that's not a concept that's, that's strange to, to Christians. But what about those who really don't identify themselves as Jews, except I happen to have a Jewish name and a Jewish grandmother?
0: Well, I think this is really important. Those Jews do it because they're American. That's it. That's really it. I don't think it goes much deeper than that, to be honest with you, which um, gives me a lot of hope because uh, there seems to be a clear vector and a clear trend in this country um, and that that circumcision rates are, are going down. And I honestly believe um, that, you know, it's important to take stock of where you are in a struggle of this nature. And I think where we are is... You know, this issue is becoming, it's like on the surface of consciousness right now. It's like bobbing up and down on the surface of awareness in this country. And once it becomes, once it gets to be fully aware, once, once people, once that tipping point happens, I think the vast majority of American Jews will take a serious hard look at this and probably follow whatever the American trend is at the time.
1: This I do have a question about this. The wine being given to the baby. Um, how is that legal? <laughs> I mean, <it's>, oh. <laughs> yeah. What's I mean? How is that okay?
0: Right. Um, <laughs> you mean because you're you're giving alcohol to a minor?
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's
0: a good question. I mean, I was asking um, David earlier today. David Llewellyn, who's uh, he's a. An injury lawyer who specializes in genital injuries. I was asking him, "How is it possible that mohels are now in my film, you know, they happen to have medical training, but there are a lot of Mohels running around that have absolutely no medical training. They just learn from another Mohel. Um, so how is that legal? Um, the wine thing, I don't know. I mean like I also I mean, there's a further problem with that, which is, who honestly believes that that is providing some kind of uh, um, anesthesia? to the baby. And in in the medical setting, this gets even worse, even more bizarre. Um, they they have this like sugar water that they give the baby. And it was a belief in medical circles for decades that this was this sort of provided some kind of anesthetic effect. It, it's
4: still a belief. It's still in the modern literature. Hector showed himself
0: say that. Yeah. It's been disproven. I mean, there was an actual, and this is, <laughs> To go from, you know, the bizarre to the ridiculous, there was a study There was a study to see whether, you know, giving just the sugar water had any kind of effect versus giving sugar water with, you know, a dorsal penile block. And what they found was that when you just give the, the sugar water, they cry just as much as if when you don't give them anything. <laughs> and they also found that their pain responses increase in the same way. So, but you know, this really sort of brings home to me like when you see a medical doctor who's gone through years of scientific training and they're saying to you, "Well, yeah, you know, sugar water, anesthetic." Um, you, you get the sense, this is a red flag to me, you get the sense that um, there's something else motivating this, there's something really powerful that's sort of shutting off the rational mind around this this money. <laughs>
2: I guess I'll just add a little bit to the discussion. I think the rationale behind that is that the baby sucking blocks the pain somehow. I really have no idea how that medically would make sense to me. Um, But, yeah, that's the rationale. And the stuff they use is called sweet teas, and they give it during pretty much anything they do to a baby. And I had something else I was going to say. Oh, yeah, the motivator would be money because foreskin – is worth money. Like they sell it, believe it or not. They put it in like facial creams. Oprah Winfrey endorses one of them that is known to use human foreskins. It's actually kind of disgusting.
0: Yeah, I tend to, and you know, I do this. You know, I say uh, I make no bones about this. I tend to minimize my emphasis of the financial motivation, not to argue that there isn't one. Just um, my sense is that this is such a deeply embedded practice it's not really just about money. That's there too. But it's, again, when you have a physician who's been trained medically over the course of the better part of a decade. And I went to medical school for three years and it's a long haul. And you're, you're studying science, proper medical science. Um, and that person is telling you that sweetened water can anesthetize an infant. Um, it's, it's, it's deeper than just financial motivation it's
1: i wonder if
2: it's... i eat a sucker during my next home birth if it'll hurt less yeah,
0: you know what i mean like what? i should try it right yeah no it's it's I'll let you know one of one of the more bizarre sort of elements of this whole story and it you know it's not it's not something i gave a lot of thought to but it of course the um <laughs> the the Mohels and the, the Jewish circumcision advocates who are the sort of apologists, they'll tell you, "Well, wow, you see, the Jewish ritual was brilliant because we've always given the baby a little bit of wine. So, you know, we knew before everyone knew that this had uh, some sort of, you know, anesthetic. Okay. Yeah.
3: I guess one of the things that seemed interesting, if you want to say, um, during the Bruce ceremony versus um, what goes on in hospitals is in the hospitals, they tend to tell the parents, um, it's not going to hurt. He's not going to feel anything. He'll probably sleep through it. Um, And they tend to very much minimize the the pain and the hardship on the baby. Um, And it seemed like, um, at the beginning of, of all of these ceremonies, especially the one that was, was in the house, um, everybody acknowledged up front and were even joking about the fact that this was going to hurt the baby. Um, the Mohol saying, you know, you know, we'll so- sorry in advance and, and don't hate me. And it just seems such a strange. Um, it, it just seems strange because to go into something where everybody's joking about the fact that they're about to hurt your baby. Whereas in, in, in general hospitals, we, we try so hard to like minimize that. Don't worry, he won't feel anything. And
0: yeah. And I think, um, they're both coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. The hospital, they're just, I mean, they're managing the patients They're well, they're managing the kid. Obviously they're cutting the kid, but they're managing the parents um, and it's just very... It's so much simpler. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost elegant. You know, get them out of the way. They, they, don't, need see. they
4: don't need to see this. If a nurse tells patient, not the patient, of course, the mother or the father the they're likely to
0: be asked to leave their Yeah.
3: But that's why it's so strange then that, that at these ceremonies that... Right, but the They're humor, not trying to hide it at all. The
0: humor is important. Um, the humor is an indication... That everyone's uncomfortable with what's going on on a very primal level. And that's the only way to deal with it. Um, but in a way, it's a little more honest, right? Um, it's a little more honest with what's happening and what's, again, we're coming back to this sort of. Right. Right. And in the medical world, that kind of honesty would not be tolerated. You need to have a black and white, you know. And and that's why also so interestingly over the course of the history of the practice in this country, when it was um, when it was bad to be sexual, mm-hmm. the foreskin you know made you hypersexual, and when it became good to be sexual, all of a sudden the foreskin didn't make a difference. Right. Um, so that's kind of interesting too.
5: I noticed uh, an obvious disconnect with the the one woman who said, uh, it's not my fault. She said to the baby, it's not my fault. Like, where does that even come from? You just want to tell the baby, not, don't blame me. I, I, I'm not to blame here for this obvious pain that you're going to be through. So,
0: You know, it's really interesting that Dr. Marks, um, Phyllis Marks, uh, I, I, I uh, agree with uh, what I just understand Dr. Paul Fleiss has said in the past. Um, that um, doctors literally don't hear the babies crying. Right. And if you listen to what she said at the beginning of the film, she says, you know, it's all about the mucking. The mucking. Um, it's not the circumcision itself that hurts, it's the mucking, you take their diaper off, all this stuff. Um, I think the presence of the camera forced her to have a conversation with herself as it was happening. And it was so, I mean, it worked for the film. Because, because you
5: interviewed her before that actual circumcision. Yes. Okay, yeah.
0: And it, it worked for the film because um, you hear her th- thought process. Right, out loud. And I, I do think that the camera forced that. It forced her to reflect on what she was doing, um, That something that she had done, I'm sure, dozens if not hundreds of times right. in the past without blinking an eye.
5: And you didn't have a conversation with her after?
0: no. We were in touch. There were a few emails sent back and forth. She said she'd be happy to talk to me. She'd seen the film. Um, I was just relieved that she, w- she wasn't angry at me.
4: Let me follow up on Dr. Marks. I was extremely disturbed to see her technique with the Mogan clamp. I'm on my sixth case of partial or total glandular ablation involving a Mogan clamp. One way to avoid that is to palpate underneath with your fingertips like one of the, uh, the I forget which uh, uh, Mohel, uh said that he did and before he put on the guard. That is extraordinarily important. There are other techniques you can use to avoid catching the glands. But it is frightening to see that a trained physician in Mohel uh, would not do that. Although I must say for the edification of those who are here, that if you go on Stanford University's website uh, and their medical center's website and Google circumcision, you will see a Mogan clamp circumcision done. Where it appears to me that not a whole lot of care is taken in that regard. There may be a quick flip to see if they're all right. But that is an extremely serious thing that can happen. Um, both in, and I have had one case involving a Jewish child that was extremely serious uh, out of a bris, and, um, and then the other ones have been in the hospital, so it happens every place. I guess I'll follow up on that. Have you heard of any serious injuries since you grew up in an orthodox community? Have you ever heard of a serious injury beyond the one you described of your, I guess it's your cousin who had a the bandage applied too tight?
0: I hear about them all the time. People try to keep it from me because they think it's just gonna become ammunition, <laughs> but I hear about them all the time. And
4: What sort of injuries do you hear about? I think I think it's important we discuss this because I know that the doctors don't, and any doctor who dares to talk about it will be shouted down when David Gibbons, who's Head of Pediatric Urology at Georgetown University Medical Center, wrote in one of the medical journals uh, about his experience and how many children he's treated. Edgar Schoen, whom we've discussed, wrote in and said, well, he is a subspecialist and they know more and more about less and less, and sort of made fun of him, and they actually printed it. I was surprised that a journal would publish that, but they did. So the doctors get attacked, so I'd really, I think anyone reading uh, or listening to this podcast would appreciate knowing your personal experience of what you've heard about or know has happened in Judaic circumcisions, which probably are done with more care than the doctors do in the hospitals.
0: Uh, everything from too much skin being removed to hemorrhage to bandages being tied too tightly, um, infection, I mean, the gamut. and. It's always, people are always horrified by it, um, which to me is strange because, you know, it's like Harry says in the film, there's no dotted line. <laughs> I mean, there's no there's no perforation mark where you tear the foreskin off. It just doesn't work that way. And, the, you know, we're talking about cutting off an essential part of the penis. Um, and, you know, there's no... I mean, I guess there are ways to make it safer, but at the end of the day, you're injuring a baby. That's the bottom line. I think we should take one more question, and then I'd like to show you a trailer for my next film. Anyone have anything else? Question or comment?
4: Has your dad changed his mind at all, I realize it would be very... Your dad is my age, and I think it would be very difficult for someone raised in his circumstances and with his beliefs to change his mind in any respect about what he clearly believes is a command by, by God. But I just wondered if he has changed his mind in any respect. He, he seemed to have come around in the, in the year that you did the film to, to at least a realization that that your way in life was more important than his personal belief, at least to him, that he wanted to see you do your way. So I'm curious to see if he's changed at all. He,
0: he admits that there's an ethical problem. Um my father is a very sophisticated way of talking about religion. Uh and he's a postmodernist, which I am not. Um and he's been very supportive since the film's been finished and he's been uh, he's been on a number of panel discussions with me about it and um he takes there's a social cost to him being supportive of me doing this. Um has he changed his mind. He very shortly after the finish was filmed, uh, very shortly after the film was finished, excuse (laughs) me. (laughs) It's been a bit of a long day. Um, after the film was finished, he uh, he had his first grandson, and uh, uh, my sister's uh, eldest, and uh, there was a circumcision. My sister's very religious. Um, and it, he was a wreck. He was really, really despondent that day. Wow. And he told me that it was the film and his participation in the film, and it was the f- first time he'd really th- experienced a bris from the baby's perspective. Uh, that's as far as we got.
4: Wow. Big step. That's
0: awesome. All right, so uh, we're gonna now show my trailer for the next film that I've been working on now for three years. I'm very excited to show it to you. And then afterwards, we'll do uh, some DVD sales. Thank you again so much for coming out. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com.